We're in 1 John 2.28, looking at verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. This is part 2. We started this section of Scripture last week, titled it, Righteousness, the Present and Ultimate Reality for the Children of God. So, you can turn to page 1022 if you're using that blue church Bible. And that will bring you to chapter 3, chapter 2, end of chapter 2. Let me ask you a question. Are Christians supposed to be different than non-Christians in some way? Okay, good, all right. I didn't expect the response, but good. You guys are with it this morning. Normally you just stare at me like, well, I don't know. You tell me, Pastor. (laughs) And then the follow-up question to that, and you don't have to answer this one. Just be thinking about it. If they are to be different, then how so? And more importantly, why? Why should they be different? Let me ask you this. Should two hours spent at church every Sunday, and that's approximately the time you'll spend here if you you come on time, be the main thing that sets a Christian apart from his non-Christian neighbor who doesn't go to church at all? Is that that what distinguishes Christians from non-Christians? The fact that they spend two hours a week or every other week or once a month or once a quarter in some cases, is is that supposed to be what distinguishes us? What about the other 166 hours in a week? Should those hours look any different for the Christian from the non-Christian? And what if they don't? What if they don't? Listen, this is obvious, but I want to say it Anyway, coming to church on Sunday doesn't make you a Christian or prove that you are a Christian any more than sitting in a garage would make or prove that you are a car. You get my point? See, cars, automobiles, like Christians, they have distinctive qualities that clearly set them apart so that when you look at them, you know it's a car or you know that it is a Christian, whether they are in church or in the garage, respectively. Now, we all know a car when we see one, right? We can identify the characteristics that distinguish something as a car. Well, the Apostle John here, he says he knows a Christian. He knows a Christian when he sees one. He knows what they look like. And there is something significant about Christians that demonstrates or proves that they are who they say they are. That they are actually children of God. Beloved, Christians live differently. They live differently. Specifically, as we'll see this morning, in regard to their morality. Their morality. But why? Why do they live differently? Let's look at the text this morning. We'll try to get at that issue. I'm going to read chapter 2, 28, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 10 of chapter 3, And I don't want to review all this again, but as I said last week, I think this is a unit here, a section of text. It all goes together 
and I've broken it really into two parts. We'll look at the remainder, verses 4 through 10, next week. But I want to read it so we have context, and you can hear the full gist, I think, of what John is trying to communicate. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 28, we'll read down to chapter 3, verse 10, then we'll come back and look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, as we're finishing up this two-part sermon here. Follow along with me, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is, if, is that it did not know him. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this... It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So this morning inside of your bulletins you'll find the outline like you usually do. There you will find this note. We're going to consider the next two of three realities. We looked at the first one last week. Related to righteousness and the children of God so that we might understand our reason and motivation for living righteously. The next two realities we're going to look at are, it is the children of God who are promised ultimate righteousness. And third, it is the children of God who purify themselves in hope of their ultimate righteousness. That's where we're going this morning. Now last week we looked at point one. It is the children of God who practice righteousness. How many of you were here last week? Okay. So for some of you, this will be review. For some of you, this will be a little new. I'll try to bring you up to speed. We primarily looked at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. And again, I, I won't review all that we discussed, but I'll mention a few things before we continue on to the next two points. In this section of John's letter, 228, through 3.10, there is a recurring theme, as we've just read and you probably just heard, a recurring theme of righteousness and sin. Righteousness and sin. Now, righteousness could be or can be understood as simply, and I'll define it for you up here just so that we're all speaking the same type of language, correct moral behavior acceptable to God, as one commentator suggested. Correct 
moral behavior acceptable to God. In other words, God defines what is correct moral behavior, right? We don't get to define that. Culture doesn't define it. God defines it. And I would just add acceptable to God, correct moral behavior acceptable to God. That would be moral behavior that is occurring not only on the outside, but it's occurring on the inside. It's a transformation of the heart. It's a desire to honor God, to serve God, to follow Him, to put off sin, to put on righteousness that begins inside and then expresses itself and overflows onto the outside. That's correct moral behavior that's acceptable to God. God doesn't care for your moral behavior that exists only on the outside. But on the inside, you're still a rebel. You still don't care to serve God. You only do it to look good or to gain some type of favor you think you're gaining with God or to get accolades from your Christian community or for your friends or even just to avoid consequences. That's your only motivation. That is not correct, acceptable moral behavior to God. Okay? So let me define that for you. Righteousness. John clearly communicates here in the text that the practice of righteousness in a person's life is evidence, okay? Evidence or proof of them being a child of God, of being a true, authentic, real Christian. And in stark contrast, we learn that the ongoing and unbroken pattern of sin in a person's life is evidence or proof that they are not a child of God. That's what John is saying, that they are not a Christian. But rather, as John says, and this is what he says, they're a child of the devil. A child of the devil. That doesn't mean they're demonically possessed. It doesn't mean there's demons in them. It means that they live just like the devil. He was a sinning from the beginning. He has no break in his pattern from sin. He cares not to live for God or to manifest righteousness. And they demonstrate by their lives that they are not children of God by their unbroken pattern of sin, but rather children of the devil. Regardless of what they might claim, beloved. People all the time say they're a Christian. But like I said, I can stand in a a garage and say I'm a car. Does that make me a car? I can come to church week after week and say I'm a Christian. Does that make me a Christian? Is that the proof? Is that the evidence? With certainty, there's people here right now who aren't Christians. With certainty. Beyond all that, we talked about this last week, there were false teachers, right? There were these, these people that were in the church but had left the church but still making a claim to Christianity yet teaching a false gospel, presenting a false Christ, teaching a false Christianity. And they may have been suggesting that it doesn't even matter if you sin. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, that's just something you do in the flesh anyway. You're okay. So for all those reasons, John is laying it down. He's making distinctions here. Very clear. Black and white. You want to know who the children of God are? You want to know who the children of the devil are? Here's how. John starts this section of Scripture we just read by instructing his Christian readers in verse 28 to abide, to abide in Jesus Christ. That is, to continue in their personal and obedient relationship with Him. Why? So that when He appears, Jesus appears, they might have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. 
How does abiding in Jesus lead to confidence when he comes? How do those two go together? Well, listen, the consequences of an ongoing and obedient relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one, right? In chapter 2, verse 1, we learn he's the righteous one. The consequences of a relationship with that type of person will certainly be the manifestation or practice of righteousness in your life to one degree or another. That's the reality. If you abide in Jesus Christ, if you continue in that relationship, you will manifest righteousness in your life. Then in 2.29, chapter 2, verse 29, we find out that it is the evidence of righteousness. It is this righteousness in your life that gives you assurance that you are actually born of God. That you are born of God. He says there, you may be sure in 2.29 that everyone, you can be sure of this, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him, born of God. The presence of righteousness then in our lives is proof, beloved, that we are children of God. Going to church, although you could say that is a righteous act, going to church in and of itself is not necessarily the the evidence that you are a child of God. It's what goes on in the other 166 hours of the week. Do you get me? When no one's around, when no one's watching. The presence of righteousness in our life, as I said, proves that we are children of God, or it is a proof. And knowing that, knowing that we are a child of God, because we have this stuff going on in our life, this good stuff, it gives us confidence and boldness when Jesus comes because we, we know, we know our status with God. As Terry talked about this morning, we know then we have been adopted into God's family. And we know then that when Jesus comes again, He won't be coming to visit us as judge. No. Not as judge, not to punish us, but rather He will be coming to take us home with Him that we might be with Him and His Father as He promised to His disciples in John 14, verse 2 and 3. Let me remind you of that promise. It says there, In my Father's house, Jesus is speaking, there's many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you would I, would, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be there also. See, so when Jesus comes and we've got this manifestation of righteousness in our life that proves to us, that makes it clear to us that that happens because we're a child of God. The righteous one, when he comes, will have confidence and boldness knowing that we are the fathers. And he's not coming to unleash his wrath on us. He's not coming to judge us. He's just coming to get us and take us home where we really belong. True Christians, beloved, they won't shrink away in shame. They won't shrink away in shame, but will welcome and celebrate the coming of the Lord with joy. With joy. Because they will know, because of this manifestation of righteousness in their life, that they are God's children. Since God is righteous, the personal practice of righteousness in our lives demonstrates, beloved, that God is our Father. That's what it demonstrates. That's what John is saying. 
Like father, like son. Remember we talked about that last week. Like father, like son. We use that phraseology and it's a reference to children being similar to their parents. It's the same for Christians. True Christians. You want to know someone's a Christian? What are they like? Are they more like the devil? Who sinned from the beginning? No unbroken pattern of sin in the, just I mean one unbroken pattern of sin in their lives? Or are they more like God, the righteous one? And we talked about this last week again, where the habit of their life is righteousness. And yes, that righteousness is interrupted by sin. Yes, we still do sin. But the pattern is an increasing, progressive process of righteousness for the true Christian. So, at the end of verse 29, that's all review. That's where we left off. At the end of verse 29, he makes this statement. He says, born of him. Right? This is how we know that we are born of him. And it says, if John pauses, I'm just going to tell you right now that, uh, hold on a second. I, I took the wrong notes, which is always very dangerous to take, and I left the other ones back there, so who knows what's going to happen this morning. But it's okay. I just have to catch myself here. Three, all right, so here's what goes on. He says, born of him at the end of this phrase, and this is what I wanted to tell you. I'm going to talk a lot before we get to the last two points, and you're going to think I'm going to go over, and I'm not, because the last two points are going to be quick. I'm not going to go over, babe. I'm not going to go over. I made a promise to Candy and the whole children's ministry and all of that, and I must, I must be righteous before them, and, and I must honor my word. So just bear with me, but this is build-up. We're kind of transitioning to these last two points. Here we go. He says, born of him, and it's almost as if John pauses. He just stops and he reflects on that phrase in 3.1. He says, born of him, pause. Now look at the passage, 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now we're going to come back to that verse in a moment, but I want to briefly just pause, talk about the idea of being born of him or being born of God. Okay? These phrases are a way of referring to the new spiritual birth that takes place in every person who turns to Jesus Christ in faith as Lord and places their trust in Him as their Savior. Jesus refers to this born-again experience. You might have heard this verse. You might know it. In John 3, the Gospel of John, John 3, verses 3 through 4, Jesus answered him, he's speaking to a man named Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Thinking about that is strange, but the, he's obviously very confused, right? Nicodemus is confused, but Jesus wasn't talking about a second natural or physical birth, but as he goes on to explain in the Gospel of John there, he was talking about a spiritual birth, a spiritual birth. We learn from God's Word that this spiritual birth takes place when a person is born of the Spirit of God, which occurs when the Holy Spirit... Third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence inside of a human being. That 
Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit then grants Christians a new nature, a new life, and the power to truly live for and follow after our righteous God. The spiritual birth or born-again experience occurs immediately when someone, and this is a phrase we use in Christianology, I can't even say that, Christian terminology, gets saved. Okay, When we talk about someone getting saved, if they really got saved, if it really happened, then the new birth happened. Okay, They have to go together. If the new birth never happened, they, I don't care what they did, what motion they did, if they raised their hand, if they filled out a card, if they responded to an altar call, I don't care about all that stuff. They were never saved unless the new birth actually happened. They go hand in hand. Those who get saved then are born again. They are born of Him. I remember there was a time when people used to talk about, oh, are you a Christian? And they'd be like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you a born again Christian? There, is, there are not two types of Christians. There are either born again Christians or those who are not. And if they're not born again, they aren't Christians. They don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. And that will become evident in their lives because they will not have power over sin. They will not change. They will not be transformed. They will never have any hope and confidence. They never can because their life just keeps declaring to them, you are not a child of God. You are not a child of God. But for the child of God, it is different. They will change. They will change. So those who get saved are born again. They're born of Him. As a result, they become children of God, which has an impact on their life, beloved. John says in John, the Gospel of John, John 1, 12-13, but to all who did receive Him. Receive who? Jesus Christ. All who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have trusted Him who have repented and turned to Him, who believed in His name, all of them, He, Christ, gave the right, the privilege, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Who were they born of? But of God. Reflecting on being born of God, John appears really here just to be caught up for a moment with the Father's love. With the Father's love. A love that has made it possible, hear me, has made it possible for sinners, wretched sinners, to be called and become children of God. That's amazing. That's what he says. Look back at the text, 1 John 3, 1. He just pauses. He's born of Him. Boom. Reflection. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And he'll come back to this again. Because he just kind of keeps recycling back through the same themes and expanding on them. Look at 1 John 4. Just flip over. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. There John writes this. In this the love of God was made manifest. Manifest, clear for everyone to see. Okay, that's what manifest Clear that everyone could see. It became evident among us. We saw God's love. How do we see that? God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Through Him, beloved. Through Jesus. In this is love. Not that, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we, we talked about propitiation in chapter 2, verse 2, because John brings it up there for the first time. But this means that he, Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. That means that God's wrath against the sin of his people, this is what propitiation means, God's wrath against the sin of his people was fully appeased through Jesus Christ. The righteous demands of a holy God were satisfied in Jesus Christ. Propitiation. Look back at 1 John 3, 1. He says, see what kind of love. See what kind of love. Now, I believe... Other translations here are helpful at this point because that word kind, it's the same word that's used in Matthew 8:27. You might remember that story. That's where Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and a storm kicks up and Jesus calms that storm. And you do that, right? When have you ever seen anybody do it? They've never seen anything like that. He just calmed the sea. And it says they marveled and they said, what sort or kind of man is this? What kind of man? What altogether different kind of man? We've never seen anything like this. So the word is is typically associated with amazement and wonder and altogether something being very different than what people are used to. And so when you look at the New American Standard Bible, it, it tries to capture that. Instead of just saying, see what kind of love, as it has it in our ESV, in 1 John 3, 1, I'll pop it up here. It says, see how great a love, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. The NIV translates it the same way, but it, it's just trying to capture that, and I, I just want you to see this too. He says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, poured out on us, that we should be called children of God, exclamation point. And that is what we are. In a sense, John is saying in his letter to the church, Wow! Some of you just came back right there. I just brought you right back. You were gone, I brought you back. Glory to God. Look! Look and see how incredible God's love is that He would take wretched, rebellious sinners who deserve and are worthy of His wrath and His anger and make them children of God. Make them His children. He didn't make us slaves. He didn't make us prisoners, but He had every right to. He had every right to, beloved. Locking us up, He had every right to. Making us grovel on the floor before Him, He had every right to. He didn't make us that. He made us children. Whose children? His. He made us His children. Behold what manner of love is this, how incredible, how out of this world is this kind of love. A love that caused God to do the unthinkable, to send His only Son 
His beloved Son to die in our place and to take our punishment that God might be able to forgive us and adopt us into His family. As Terry was talking about this morning, adopt us into His family and give us so great a salvation. And you want to talk about inheritance, beloved. I don't know what He's given. It's probably good. But it ain't nothing compared to the inheritance of God. It is hard to truly understand or get our minds around. I'm going to tell you, it's hard for me to get my mind around that kind of love. One writer says, to see the Father's love correctly, he says, is to sink down, to sink down in adoration before it. For it is beyond comprehension. Beloved, the Christian, I'll just add this, the Christian is not the true Christian, the authentic Christian, the real Christian, the one who has been born again, the one who has given his life or her life to Jesus Christ, the one who is being transformed by Jesus Christ as evident of the righteousness that is being produced in their life incrementally, progressively, consistently. That one, they're not trying to earn God's love. They already have it. They already have it. I have it. I have it in full. And they have been able to become God's children because of that very love. That incredible, out of this world kind of love. When we think on this love, beloved, the only appropriate response is worship. It's worship. Right? That's why we gather. We gather to worship. Because we have been impacted personally by that love. John then adds to the end of 1 John 3, 1. If you look back at the text, he, he just talks about that the world does not know us. It does not know us because it did not know Him. Him being Jesus Christ. When Jesus, the unique Son of God, came the first time, the world for the most part, as we know through the Gospels and historical records, it didn't recognize, the world didn't recognize Jesus for the most part for who He was and still is, by the way. He is the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They didn't recognize Him and rather of bowing down and worshiping Him, which is, would have been the appropriate response, they crucified Him. They murdered Him. An innocent man, the Son of God. Well, guess what? As children of God, the world doesn't understand or recognize us for who we really are either. They don't. They don't, they don't get it. They don't get us. You ever had a conversation with your, your unbelieving family and they, they have concern about your, your church activity, that you go to church every week, and you, you give money to church, and you, oh, you go to church more than once a week, and, and these kind of things, why do you have to read your Bible? They don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't get Christianity. They don't, they don't understand children of God. And in fact, John adds this in verse 13 of that very cha- same chapter. Not only do they not get us, they don't understand it. They can't recognize what all this means. But he says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. What? Hates 
Why would they hate you? Well, listen, just real quick as a teaser, we're going to get to that passage eventually, but in this passage right here, he's talking about Cain and Abel. Do you remember that story, Cain and Abel? Kids go way back. Do you remember Cain killed, Cain and Abel are brothers, and Cain killed somebody. Who did he kill? His brother. He killed his brother. And John asks the question, why did he murder him? Look, look at this real quick. Look at, look at 3.12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And one commentator says this. He says, righteousness draws hatred from the devil and the children of the devil. Righteousness draws hatred from the devil and the children of the devil. They don't get it. They don't like it. And the manifestation of righteousness in a world that is corrupt and wicked and bound by sin and unrighteousness only irritates them, only bothers them. You guys know this to be true. You're at a party. Maybe. Maybe you still go to parties. But you're at a party, right? Just think back to your old days. You're at a party. Everyone's getting wasted. What do they want you to do? Get wasted too. And if you don't get wasted with them, they're bothered by that. They don't like that. And they don't get why you have an issue with getting wasted anymore. They don't get it. One writer says this about the fact of us being different and and why they don't get it. It says, Having been born again, giving a new nature of heavenly origin, Christians display a nature and lifestyle like their Savior and Heavenly Father. A nature totally foreign to the unsaved. Foreign. They don't understand it. They're bound by sin. They're still slaves to sin. And they don't get what's going on. They don't understand this whole child of God thing. By the way, great opportunity for you to explain it to them. To explain it to them. But they don't get it. The world doesn't get it. But regardless of the world's inability to comprehend us or understand our identity as children of God, John says again, look back at the text, 1 John 3, 2, he says, even though they don't get us, even though the world doesn't understand us, they don't recognize our status as children of God, beloved, we are God's children right now. We are now children of God. And what we will be, has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And believe it or not, I just finally got to the first point. Well, point two. And here it is. It is the children of God who are promised ultimate righteousness. It's in this passage. It is the children of God who are promised ultimate righteousness. So John is just saying, hey, listen, whether the world properly recognizes us or not, it doesn't matter. We are God's children right now. And yet, all that is in store for the child of God has not yet become a present reality. For in the future, when Jesus Christ appears, when He comes again, and when we see Him at His coming, we, the children of God, will be just like Him. We shall become Like Jesus, we shall be completely transformed into His likeness, physically and spiritually. Having glorified bodies and possessing, get this, possessing perfect holiness and righteousness. 
One writer says, We will have transformed, incorruptible bodies just like Him. Immortality, purity, perfection, and absolute righteousness. One writer adds this, While rejoicing in the present possession of eternal life, believers also look forward to the undisclosed future still ahead. They know that God's work in and with them, in them and with them, is not yet complete. They are assured that the best is yet to come. Amen. Beloved, Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ is the perfectly righteous one, right? John 2, verse 1, completely righteous. The one in whom there is no sin, according to chapter 3, verse 5. No sin, not even an inkling of sin, no remnant of sin, no stain of sin. He is the sinless one. Did you get all that? And we, as children of God, have the promise and hope that we will be like that sinless one one day. Though we practice righteousness now, it is still a battle every day to say no to sin and yes to God. Any amens on that? It's still a battle in this life to say no to sin and say yes to God. We fight and struggle against sin in our lives and we don't always win that battle, beloved. Like criminals in a home invasion who bust in and turn your house upside down, sin busts into our lives and interrupts our practice of righteousness and wreaks havoc on our souls, on those we love, those around us. Destructive. Sin is destructive. Corrosive, wicked, vile. I don't know about you, but this is why I long for the day that sin will no longer be a part of my reality. And I'm not just talking about those who sin against me. I'm talking about my own sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? I long for the day where my struggle with sin will cease. And I know, I know, because of God's Word, and you should know too, that day is coming. That day is coming. One day, no more sin, only righteousness for the child of God that is your ultimate reality, beloved. In his book, The Glory of Heaven, John MacArthur writes these words, The whole person, the whole person, just listen, body and soul will be made completely flawless. We can't envision it now. It has not yet appeared. But we will finally be holy and completely Christ-like. This is the very purpose for which God called us in eternity past, to be conformed to the image of of His Son, as we are told in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. That's why God has saved us to conform us, to transform us into the image of His Son, the Righteous One. And when we see Christ, John says, MacArthur, 
We will instantly be made utterly perfect, for we shall see Him as He is. Heaven, then, is a perfect place for perfect people. Those people will be made perfect by Jesus Christ. As much as glorified, I like this last line, listen, as much as glorified humanity, that'll be us, can resemble incarnate, exalted deity, as much as that is possible, we will resemble our Lord. We won't become little gods. We're not Mormons here. We won't become little gods. We won't become God. But as much as it is possible to look like the exalted, incarnate Son of God, we will on that day. As Christians get older, they find hope in the promise of a new glorified body. And, and that makes sense to me as I begin to get a little... You know, becoming old uh, is not all it's cracked up to be. It isn't. There are benefits, like grandchildren. I mean, that, I'm telling you right now, that is like, that's the bomb. It is fantastic. But other than that, I, I can't, you know, you're supposed to, all this maturity and stuff comes with it, and supposedly you pay off your house, but I haven't experienced all that yet. Um, it's just not that, there's not a lot of fun with it. But listen, there, and that is glorious, and I long for that. I know my wife longs for that, five surgeries on her knees. She's longing for the day she doesn't have to think about that anymore. As good as that is, beloved, there is much more than that to our hope of being transformed into Jesus Christ. There is much more to our hope than just getting rid of our, our aches and pains and the bad health that comes as we age. Our real hope, here it is, our real hope is the permanent and complete absence of sin in our lives and the continual and unbroken unbroken, beloved, presence of righteousness, manifestation of righteousness in our lives. That's the hope. That's what we long for, or we should, as Christians. The body is a bonus. But the change completely in our reality, the absence of sin, no more struggle with sin, the reality of living perfectly righteous, wow as our Lord and Savior does and did. God is perfectly righteous, and as His children, we will one day be perfectly righteous as well, practically. And this future hope that John says, it, or it is this future hope that John says will, will impact how we live now. It's going to impact how we live now. And that brings me to the last point. Look back at the text. The last point is, it is the children of God who purify themselves in hope of this ultimate righteousness that John has just been, been pouring out for us here. 1 John 3.3, 3, and it says, Everyone who thus hopes in Him, and everyone, no exceptions, and everyone who thus hopes in Him, Jesus Christ, you know what they do? Purifies Himself as He is pure. The child of God, listen, the child of God who hopes in Jesus' return and the reality, like we've been talking about, of what that return will mean for them, that they will be made like Him when He appears, which includes holiness and righteousness, that hopeful child of God consequently 
makes it their aim, their goal in life, to be morally pure in the present, in this life, to keep themselves from sin, the stain of sin and sin itself, to be Christ-like, to purify themselves as He is pure. How do they know how to do that? Look to Jesus Christ. He is the model to follow and the standard to live by when it comes to our personal pursuit of purity. Now, I wonder how many of us in the last month or so have talked about our personal pursuit of purity. Oh, there's lots of things we pursue. But do we pursue purity? I wonder if that's even a word that we use in our Christian conversations about ourselves. I know we use it with our daughters. Yes. We use it with our daughters. No shame in that. I'll keep using it. But do we use it in regard to our own, our own lives? Is this just for our daughters, guys? Nope. It's for us. One writer says, the more he, the Christian, contemplates or thinks about or meditates on this assured hope of being conformed to the image of Christ, the more eagerly he will strive for present personal purity. Let me explain it like this. Those who hope to be perfectly like Christ one day, okay? Who, who hopes to be perfectly like Christ one day? Christians do! The world could care less, but Christians do. Why? Because they're children of God. The Spirit of God resides inside of them. The, chil- the Spirit of God jumps for joy, in a sense. Jumps for joy in light of that future hope. And we too then jump for joy. Those who hope to be perfectly like Christ one day will work to progressively be like Christ today. Did you get that? Those who hope to be perfectly like Christ one day will work to progressively be like Christ today, even if they cannot achieve perfection now. And we won't. The child of God knows that perfection will not come until Jesus appears. But you know what? They long for that perfection. As they hope in Christ, as they think about and they meditate and they contemplate on all that that means, I will no longer wrestle with sin. Sin will no longer be a part of my life. My life will manifest righteousness perfectly just like my Savior. As they long for wanting that, then they pursue it now in this present life to the degree that they can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of them. They make it their passion to be like Him now. And you know what happens? That results in a transformed life and a life that is increasingly marked by righteousness and holiness. Increasingly. Do you understand? Does that make sense to you? I want this now, so I'm going to do what I can to get it now. I'm going to work towards that. I'm going to pursue that. I know it won't come in perfection or completion until that day. But if I want it then, then I want it now. And Christ, through what He did on the cross, has given me the power through the Holy Spirit to manifest that now to some degree. That reality. 
oh, my body will still ache away. It will break to pieces and I'll die. But the manifestation of righteousness in my life will become a more and more present reality for me as I place and fix my hope on what will happen to me one day when Jesus Christ appears. One writer says it this way, I can't have a passionate longing to be like Christ in this life to come or in the life to come without it affecting the life I live here. How, how could that be, beloved? So I know when people don't pursue purity and I know when I don't pursue purity, you know what's happened? I've taken my eyes off that hope. I've taken my eyes off that hope. They're not fixed any longer on my ultimate destiny, on my ultimate reality. I've gotten caught up somewhere else. And the second I place my eyes back there, I begin to contemplate those things, wow, I get excited. And I want that to some degree to be a reality for me right now. And so I put off sin and I put on righteousness. I say no to rebellion against God and I say yes to letting God have His way with me, in me, and through me. I say no to the devil I say yes to the Holy Spirit that resides inside of me. Manifest yourself in my life. Let your fruits of righteousness come out of me. That's what I want. And that life is a transformed life, changed life, a better life, a better life, a better life. Are we hoping in Him, beloved? Are we anticipating His return? Are we longing to be made like Him? If the answer is yes, then we will pursue Christ-likeness now. We will purify ourselves as He is pure. We will strive to keep ourselves from sin in this life. We looked at these points. Let me just remind you of them again. It is the children of God who practice righteousness. It is the evidence of righteousness in a person's life that demonstrates the reality that they have moved out of being under the wrath of God and children of the devil into a new category under God's grace and love and manifesting righteousness, being adopted into His family. It is the children of God, beloved, who are promised ultimate righteousness. When their Lord and Savior comes, they will see Him just as He is. They will be just like Him as much as that is possible. Sin will no longer be a reality for them. It is the children of God who purify themselves in hope of that ultimate righteousness. If that's my hope, if that's what I'm longing and dreaming of and I'm passionate for, then that's going to have an impact on how I live right now. You know what? Let me close with this here and then we're going to have communion together. I used to hear people, I don't hear it so much, maybe I don't travel in the right circles anymore, but people would say, I'm a child of the king. And they would say it in a way that sometimes was a little arrogant sounding to me, without any judgment. It just sounded arrogant. Like, do you know who I am? I'm a child of the king. And usually after those phrases came, do you know what that means I'm entitled to? Because, you know, I'm a child of the king. Don't talk to me like that. I'm a child of the king. I'm this. I'm that. You don't know who I am. Wait a minute. Okay. Why don't we try this one? I'm a child of God. Now let that one sit with you for a while. You know, I just, it seems like people are more focused on their rights than what it means to actually be a child of God. And to be a child of God, beloved, means 
There's got to be change in your life. There's no change in your life. You can just stop saying you're a child of God. That's what John is saying. Just stop it. Anyway, this morning, we're, in, we're going to have communion together, so we've got to do that right now. And this is our time where we remember what Jesus Christ did for us, how he, he redeemed us, that is, if we know him as our Lord and Savior. So we, you know, we take this bread, you know this, and I just, it's good to remind you, we take the little piece of bread, we take the cup, and these things are symbols. Jesus turned them into symbols. They represent something. He said, hey, take this bread. This is my body. I'm going to give it for you. Take this wine. This is my blood that's offered up for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now, 1 Corinthians 11:26. I've said this many, many times, but I'm going to say it again, especially in, in light of this passage. At the end of 1 Corinthians 11:26, Paul says, For as often... As you eat this bread, which we're going to do right now, we do it on the first Sunday of every month, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, and remember, this is a meal for Christians. This is a meal for the children of God. If you're not a child of God, or you're not sure about being a child of God, do not partake, but come and talk to me. Come and talk to me after the service. I would love to chat with you about what it means to be a child of God and how that can become a reality in your life. But if you're not a child of God, don't take. And parents, use caution with your children. They shouldn't partake of this unless they have given their life to Jesus Christ. This is not just a meal we're having together. This is a communion meal, a celebratory meal of what Jesus Christ has done for that individual. And if they haven't given their life to Christ, this meal is not for them. Okay? So use wisdom. But at the end of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you know what you do? You proclaim the Lord's death, because that's the, that's the stuff we're taking. They're symbolic of his death on our behalf. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there's always this reminder that he's coming to the church. They were thinking about it regularly and consistently. They were talking about it. It's all throughout the Bible. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And it is that reminder, that meditation upon His coming, and we just saw it in John, and when He comes, we'll be made like Him, that motivates us to live for Him right now. And begin to put off sin, and to walk in the fruits of the Spirit, and manifest righteousness in our lives. So as you partake of the elements this morning, where they're going to be passed out, and wait, we'll all eat at the end, as you partake of these elements this morning, and as you wait until we do that, be thinking about that. Thinking about His coming and what that means for you and how it should impact your life now. Let's pray for the communion meal this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time in the Word. Father, whatever was worthless, I pray you just remove from everyone's mind. But whatever honors you and whatever was good and accurate, Father, may it be burned into our minds, and into our hearts. Father, may we be transformed. We know that's how it happens. May we be transformed by the hearing of your word, the believing of that word, and the applying of your word in our lives as the Holy Spirit that resides in us as children of God takes that word and gives us the power and desire to obey it, come under it, and live by it. Father, change us. Change us, we ask, for your glory and for our good, we want to be changed, Father. And there's parts of us that doesn't want to be changed, Father. Work in us that we would repent of even that. 
that our desire and the passion of our heart and soul would be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior who laid down His life willingly that He might redeem us and save us and make us a people zealous for Him and for good works. Father, I pray Your blessing upon this meal now. May we honor it rightly. May we focus in on all that it means. May we be amazed and marvel at the love, Your love that is expressed in this meal as we remember what Jesus Christ did for us, how you sent him for us. Father, may you help us fix our mind and our hope on his appearing again and all that that means for us, that it might impact our lives even now. We ask your blessing in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus Christ, amen.